0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the band and the native hipsters, because I recently spoke to William Wildin, very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff anyway this is the interview so after several minutes of casual chat that you have in the world that is showbiz mostly talk about Covid probably we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years and I think William has written a list anyway this is it William tell us about your formative years and those important records and bands over to you
1: Yeah, well, I was a bit of a late developer in terms of um, interesting music. I guess my first single was probably uh, Tommy Steele, Little White Ball, when I was, uh, you know, I don't know, seven or something. What a song that was, Little White Ball. Um, No, crap, but uh, anyway, Little White Ball. Um, Actually, I've made a list of all my formative um, stuff here. Shall I give you... Uh, it's not extensive. Um, so I've got the Beatles, Frank Zappa, Frank Sinatra, Andy Warhol, Paul Suzanne, Picasso, The Desperate Bicycles, The Goons, Monty Python, Spike Milligan, R. Mutt, Stockhausen, Philip Glass, Eno, David Bowie, Ragtag and Bobtail, Tommy Steele, The Clash, Nurse with Wound, Led Zeppelin, Captain Beefheart, Captain Bogbush, Fireball X45, Jukebox Jury, Flanders and Swan, Kurt Switters. Pink Floyd, and, of course, Bob Dylan. Um, but there's a lot more to put in there. Yes. Uh, I I was just typing that list and thinking to myself, because I have prepared, David. I haven't just come on. <laughs> I've, I've prepared. We're not going to uh,
0: wing this then, are we? we, we this is gonna be gonna... <laughs> well, we
1: are going to wing it, because obviously you just prepare it and then it all goes out the window. But uh, <laughs> I was about influences... And I was thinking Kurt Switters. Um, do you know that name? Do you know Kurt Switters? No. Right, so Kurt Switters, German artist, um, responsible for um, collaging stuff together. Um, for instance, he built a room. He was in England for a while. Uh, he's, I don't, I don't know, 50s or 60s or something. Um, And he built a room where he just collaged all sorts of stuff together in the room. Um, And it made me think that um, throughout my musical life, that's one of the biggest influences is collaging um, or placing things next to each other, which shouldn't be there. And it's when you put something totally unrelated to something else and you put it next to it and it suddenly starts to work yes. and you're a bit of a buzz in the head and for the last few years I suppose that's what I've been doing musically but of course you're asking to go right back to the start so you've got Tommy Steele and you've got Russ Conway and then you've got segueing into Frank Sinatra because my dad was a big Frank Sinatra fan so um he slapped that on and listened to it at full volume there was a lot of music in the house yes
0: so your parents were quite
1: I wouldn't say bohemian, were they slightly bohemian no not bohemian at all my dad would drag me down to the barbers to get my hair cut if it started to get over my ears
0: right yes I don't know thanks because um, because I suppose my parents during that period were quite into country and the kind of country like Boxcar Willie and Tammy Wynette and those kind of yeah. qu- quite even to this day, you know, um, Jim Reeves. I just remember not the kind of like, oh, yeah, that would have been hip and groovy. Thanks. But that it was kind of boxcar. Wheelie. I just remember being slightly traumatised with country music for decades after that. Really,
1: so, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Jim Reeves, you know, there was a few good Jim Reeves songs, actually. I quite like Jim Reeves when when my dad relented and put something on apart from Frank Archer.
0: But they, it felt quite easy. I wouldn't say I was kind of rebelling at the age of 10 because I wouldn't know what rebellion is. But it was kind of like top of the pops and seeing the kind of the explosion of the 70s glam thing did feel a little bit more exciting. So I, I sort of my ears kind of made it feel a little bit more interesting. But but coming back to your interest in because obviously you've got Andy Warhol there. What about people like Richard Hamilton or or some of the, I don't know, the other sort of Jackson Pollock. Did those artists sort of come into your consciousness or the beat generation like Jack Kerouac?
1: Yeah, all of them come in. I, you know, I would have added those in if I'd thought of them while I was typing. Let's, let's face it, I would have tried to get them all in. Um right. beat generation poets, um, I guess they would have influenced uh, my writing. Probably more so the, the Liverpool poets. Um, Roger. Roger McGough and people like that would have influenced me more, maybe. And, or perhaps uh, Dylan Thomas, even. Um, Milk Wood was a massive thing for me when at school they played it. You know, they brought out that huge, big three or four uh, blokes in um, <laughs> caretaker uniforms would push this huge thing. Into the room, and it, um, and they'd put on a an album of uh, Under Milk Wood or something, and we'd sit there listening to him. Um, whoever, it, who was it? It was what's his name, the actor reading it out. Um, so that would have been a big influence.
0: Yeah. So what about those kind of performance events? Um, yeah, those kind of things that used to happen in sort of exciting places in London. You know, that part of the. There was a guy called Barry Miles, and hoppy hopkins and they did all these kind of happenings and there was an artist in this area called bruce lacey you got very oh, well these. i know bruce
1: lacey
0: yeah yes and they started putting these performance art pieces on and obviously bruce used to live just down the road from here so he was quite a big kind of a big, I wouldn't say big cheese, big cheese, but in the 70s there was a lot of fair, fairs and festivals that started to spring up in East Anglia. And uh, Bruce was often there slightly, well, quite naked with paint on and a few feathers doing right. some sort of fertility ritual kind of goddess thing, which was,
1: uh, we loved it mm. when, when we were quite young. Know, <laughs> so it was quite different, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, th- those, uh, I can't ever remember seeing him naked, but uh, I'd seen films of him doing stuff And when I went to art college, I went, uh, I was at art college from about seven. Well, I I did a pre-diploma thing earlier than that, but from about 76 to 79 in London. Uh, So a lot of those performance uh, happening things had already happened like 10, 15 years earlier. But it was still coming through and we were still being influenced by it so i did mixed media at Cotty at college um and and the sort of things i did would be um those sort of happening type things i can remember one where we we barricaded all the lecturers behind um this wall of plastic and then people came in with buckets of paint and <laughs> threw them all over the plastic and smeared it all around with our hands while people Rode around on tricycles playing trumpets and, you know, just a cacophony of absolute ass- assaulting them. And uh, only to find afterwards that they'd all opened a window and nipped out the back, <laughs> <laughs> doing it to an empty room for the last half hour. <laughs> yeah, lo- lots of sort of performance like that. Yes. And that's that's obviously so was, as, as, when did you
0: start sort of feeling a sort of a musical moment, sort of coming in sort of feeling that you were uh, you would like to one day be in an experimental pop band? Well, I guess
1: it started happening just before then. I went to Foundation Art College in um, Braintree in Essex um, and met uh, with a couple of other guys. We'd go round to all the folk clubs um, for singer's nights and stuff like that, you know, not booked, just turn up, do a couple of songs and get back on his motorbike and zoom off into the night. Um, and so I was writing sort of nonsense songs, probably inspired by Eno, I would imagine. You know, Eno was had already left Roxy Music and he was bringing out his first... Here Come the Warm Jets, and and those other sort of things, full of those songs, uh, those quirky songs he was writing before he got onto elevator music. Um, And so we'd we'd write these sort of songs um, that were just noise and um, scat and just words thrown, rehearsed, but thrown in rhythm. And we'd go into folk clubs and we'd do that. We'd put our fingers in our ear and um, we'd sing, I don't know, um, Baradal paths composed of glue, Compuse the penguins as we flew. Sort of, <laughs> sort of nonsense. And um, blokes with pints of beer in their hand would sit and sort of look at us and think, thank God it's singer's night and there'll be something... <laughs> On in a minute <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. they're so, quite
0: pre- they're quite precious kind of events, though aren't they? I've been to quite a few folk clubs where you really you
1: have to yeah you have to be very you can't start chatting
0: you can't you know
1: they were gr- they were great, and when I left there and came to London, there wasn't anything like them in london there were pubs, and I guess there were gigs going on, of course, there were gigs going on, but there were no things where People could just get up and do two or three minutes uh, of any kind, whether whether it was traditional songs or the sort of thing we preferred, which was crazy stuff. And so uh, one of the things we did, at, uh, it was Wimbledon School of Art, we, we started a club called The Coat Club, where we'd invite students from all different colleges in London, like Chelsea and various other colleges, and they'd come along and do... Things. So you'd get someone standing in a bucket of water, having water tipped over them from a watering can while reciting some poem. or And, and that that would last just a couple of minutes and then something else would come on. And, and we did it at places like the ICA um, and did it at a couple of other colleges. But we ran it for about two years um, there. And I suppose it was about that time I met this bloke, um, Robert Cubitt. Who um, was a brilliant musician, and um, we sort of joined together to become the Wildings, and he he just was able to supply all the music, and I just supplied the the lyrics and the singing, and um, we recorded our first sounds like it's very showbiz, isn't it? But we we recorded an album there. I've got a copy. Your listeners won't be able to see it, nor will you, because it won't work with the background. Um, but oh, sort of, it's sort of there. Anyway, that was one of the first, I don't know whether it was the first, but it was a crowdfunding um, album. So we recorded it in the mixed media uh, room at Wimbledon School of Art on, on a couple of um, two-track, reel-to-reel, Revox tape recorders. Um, and then we went round the college and got all the students. We did our timing perfectly. We waited until their um, their grant checks yes, came in. The grant they had, checks they had real grants in those days that they didn't have to pay them back. <laughs> um, and uh, we went round and we got ten pounds from every student at the well, who would give it to us. Um, ten pounds from each one raised sort of five hundred quid. Pressed pressed five hundred copies of it. Uh, and so it, it's a pretty crap album, it has to be said. <laughs> um, it, it was 1978, I think, we released it. Um, and then we sold the copies. and Bizarre places, I think 100 copies went to Canada for no other reason than someone was willing to pay for them and ship them out there. They're probably all still in bargain boxes in junk in shops in Canada. I, I doubt whether anyone actually bought them, uh, yeah. but we of them. And then we were able to pay back the, uh, the people that gave us the 10 quid. And luckily we did that just at the end of term when they actually needed the money because they'd blown all their grant checks.
0: Well, that's an amazing story because, you know, so during that period, obviously musically, there was, there'd been that sort of, Interesting change, you know. I'd mentioned the glam rock period of the early period, you know, the early 70s, and then obviously every scene kind of goes a bit downhill quickly. And then there'd been a bit heavy rock, and it, obviously, we remember the pop, prog rock days with, yes, Genesis and Wishbone Ash and yeah. Roger Dean album covers, which everyone loved of that period. But then there was also the rise of people like the, the Velvet Gold, Velvet Underground, and then the Stooges and the New York Dolls and that punk scene from. Yeah, the the East Coast in America and then the rise of sort of yeah. the punk scene in the 70, you know, 75, 76 in in the UK. So did you know, was that at all coming into your consciousness, that type of anger and excitement or were you slightly not so kind of drawn into it?
1: Yeah, well, we we were aware of it. I, I wasn't I, I can't pretend that I was at the early clash gigs or the early Sex Pistols gigs or whatever. Um, but we were aware of it i had the first, you know all those albums i bought them all at the time the clash and the sex pistols and the damned and and all that bunch um so i loved the music before that of course i'd been into the prog rock i had yes albums i'd i i i am embarrassed to say i had uh although i did stop after about the third album of yes i decided they'd they'd progressed further than I was willing to follow them. Um, <laughs> uh, them and Barclay James Harvest and various other, um, Caravan. Yeah, I was going to say,
0: did you get into that Canterbury kind of scene with Soft Machine and Robert Wyatt and Kevin Collins? I still
1: really love Soft Machine and I still love Robert Wyatt. But Caravan, I did re-buy a Caravan album uh, In the Land of Grey and Pink. I rebought that, listened to it, and I thought, you know, I can't stand this. Um, I'm going to destroy it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is going to come on to something else that I'm going to have to tell you about, because I don't know if you're aware that uh, I personally have destroyed probably 2000 Duran Duran albums. No, I did not know you. You know,
0: you normally buy one album and make a mistake and, <laughs> and throw it, but that, that's kind of... Well, that's, after, did you um, I'm, jumping ahead,
1: I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, David, because um, in, in the, my musical pharaoh years, and we'll go back to the native hipsters in a minute, but I suppose from about 85 to 90, I was um, a youth worker. Um, and I was also doing a bit of painting and decorating. Art students tended to come out and think, what the, what the fuck are we going to do now? And painting and decorating was a big thing. And I ended up teaching art uh, to, uh, in youth clubs and stuff, and painting and decorating as well. But about 1990, the alternative comedy scene arrived, and I lived round the corner from uh, one of the first junglers clubs in Battersea. And um, I went to one of the shows and I thought, well, I could do this. I've got a background in in craziness and standing on stage and and just showing off, basically. So um, I set up a club uh, called the Third Eye Level Grill in Clapham. And we started getting all the the original um, sort of performers of that time and at that time of course it wasn't big business so you weren't getting loads of um you weren't getting um all the stand-ups that you now see on Hammersmith Apollo or whatever
0: but didn't you you, get Ben Elton and Arthur Smith and
1: and dear old Malcolm Uh, yeah Arthur Smith of course he he had that love. Laconic sort of delivery, but I'm thinking more of there was an act, for instance, called the Ice Man. I know you had Stuart Lee on the show a little while ago, and if you'd said to him, "What do you think of the Ice Man?", he'd have told you, because um, we had Stuart Lee at the club as well. Um, but the Ice Man, for instance, he came on with a huge fucking block of ice. It was like two foot square, and he spent the half an hour or twenty minutes or half an hour that he was on stage melting it with blow torches or chiseling it away with hammers and stuff and just making crap jokes and then there was another bloke that came on and he had his coat full of cutlery that he'd stolen probably from a motorway service station or something and um, (laughs) throughout the show he'd just be dropping cutlery would be dropping out onto the stage when I say cutlery, I mean hundreds, if not thousands of knives and forks and spoons so that they were just cascading out of his clothing, down his trouser legs, out of his arms, off of his, coming out of his pockets. And so he'd be walking around the stage and shuffling through all these knives and forks. Anyway, that's the sort of standard of act that was around. So what, about, I, what
0: about raw sex? Do you have, have the two guys who call themselves... We did
1: have raw sex with what's his name and his bongo. Yes. Uh, we had joe brand we had harry hill uh we had the rubber bishops of course uh which was the band before bill bailey uh, so the, the other but rubber bishop said sod this i'm not making any money i'm going back to be a school teacher and bill bailey carried on and uh no one ever heard of him since no but uh, um i thought i could do something so I, what i did is i created a show called record graveyard um, so it ties back into music. And so I had a record player on stage and I'd have about 15 records uh, ranging through Duran Duran, The Monkeys, um, all sorts of crap. And uh, we'd play a little bit of each one and then the audience voted whether I should nail it to a lump of wood uh, or whether it should be as saved and sent to record graveyard. And it was like a cathartic experience for people. You know, you'd have half the room going, save that record, it means so much to me. And uh, (laughs) other people, nail nail that to that lump of wood, for God's sake, nail it. Um, And at that time, and you'll remember this, David, records were sacrosanct. You picked them up, you slid them out with their inner sleeve in, we touched them by their edges, Um, You placed them carefully on the record player, wiped the dust off, lowered, lowered quite very gently the record needle onto it and played it. Um, So for me to come on and just grab a record out and rip the cover off of it and smash the record on the sides of the record player or, or set fire to it and scratch the needle all over it and go absolutely berserk and then nail it to a lump of wood, to various calls of, you know, get rid of that fucker or um, save it or whatever. Um, So I did that show for about 20 years, um, uh, you know, at Glastonbury and loads of clubs all well, travelled around Europe doing it. So I I sort of got out of making music and into destroying music. So when I say um, my proud boast that I destroyed over 2000 Duran Duran LPs. I I actually did, that's not a lie, every weekend I'd go round car boot sales, I'd drive into um, Kent or somewhere from where I lived in in South London and um, and buy like two or three hundred albums for 50p each and then during that week I'd do say five gigs um, and smash my way through those albums. And it was, it soon became apparent that something like Duran Duran was a real Marmite band. You know, half the people in the room loved it, absolutely loved it. And half the people thought they were the fucking devil incarnate. Um, (laughs) So when you got them to vote on it, people would be standing on their chairs, shaking their fists and screaming. Or, you know, I'd have people run up to the front and grab the record and try and wrestle it off me to save it. Um, We'd have have people I'd put on, say, The Eagles, and someone at the front would just go, well, if you're going to smash The Eagles, I'm leaving. (laughs) (laughs) And would would stride out of the room, um, absolutely pissed off that their favourite band was being destroyed
0: yes well that's quite So amazing. I did a lot of that
1: yes absolutely um, and what was that club that, for again? game uh, the club that I ran was called the third eye level grill um, but obviously I, I didn't just do it there I did it once I'd been running that club for about six months and I'd sort of worked my act up from zero I started getting people saying could you come and do that at my club? <laughs> um, <laughs> All over the place. Um, so yeah.
0: Yes. So going back to that—that that kind of bef- the the pre well, as the band was, you know, you'd work pre bit,
1: which is the native hipster area, really. And, which is, yeah,
0: because like you had those bands like the Fabulous Poodles and the and Deaf School from Liverpool, and so there was a lot. There was a lot of arty bands around yeah. at that time doing quite quirky things but obviously it wasn't really you know when it had like the ramones the clash sex pistols you know the the, the fabulous poodles did look a little bit like more the cabaret act and it, you know i've done yeah. interviews to two of the members and you could tell that they were thinking we should have been a lot bigger shouldn't we but we just weren't you know so, yeah. so are you aware of those bands and groups
1: well aware of all of them um we had uh, the Lemon Kittens living just round the corner from us. Um, was that Daniella Dax? Yeah, Daniella Dax. Um, uh, I think... Um, well, we, we lived in Battersea. I lived on Battersea Rise, and um, uh, the the song that I guess... The reason I'm on this show is the song There Goes Concord Again. Yes. was written... Um, I wrote it looking out of the window over Battersea Rise um, and watching women walking up and down the street. There's a hill and people did walk up and down. Women were walking up and down wearing, uh, with red pullovers, pulling shopping trolleys. They were doing it all day. Um, and I was, at the time, I met the singer and the net and we were living together. She she went to Wimbledon School of Art as well. She, she was a... Um, a painter, an abstract painter. Um, and we were living in this flat um, and writing this stuff and, and recording it on reel-to-reel tape recorders.
0: Yes. So how was your... relate? So the Lemon Kittens, they were, they, they were part of a band... God, I didn't realise you are going to mention them. But the Shock-Headed Peters, there was a, ba- a whole load
1: of... Well, people- again, I remember that name, but I just can't... I can't remember all of them. Uh, I do have a slight problem with my memory these days, um, probably due to uh, various habits I had in the past, which I don't have now, but uh, various habits have meant that a lot of stuff has slipped my mind. But I do remember the Lemon Kittens, they actually phoned us up and said, do you want to meet up and have a cup of tea? And we we met up and had a cup of tea and um, looked out the window at the Battersea Rise and stuff like that.
0: Yes. So there was a guy called Carl Blake, wasn't there? Yeah. Uh, very various, various other people who became various other bands. There was, yeah, so Daniela Dax was the one, and then Shockheaded Peters and various other people who were part of, there was definitely a crew, wasn't there, of people. Um, yes, Dave Knight. I knew I'd, I'd interviewed Carl Blake and
1: Dave Knight. Mm. Um, yes. I'm not sure about them, but but basically that that's what we were up to at that time. We were just experimenting. We were both, uh, uh, Nanette and I were both um, sort of had a, a way, an abstract way of approaching stuff. Um, she'd been told from the moment she first opened her mouth that she couldn't sing and um, she couldn't sing in tune and she couldn't keep a rhythm uh, and that was true she couldn't um but that's why we liked her style because every time she did something it was basically different um, <laughs> and if you said to her here's a lovely tune could you sing along with this no she couldn't do it so um all or more or less all the stuff that um uh, and the native hipsters did We'd record her voice first, completely silent, and then we'd collage backgrounds underneath her voice to suit her voice to make to make it seem like she was riding on top of it when when in fact we put it underneath her. Right. Uh, Yes.
0: It all came because there was a lot of there was a really big avant-garde scene coming out of New York. There was a label called Z Z Records, S E Records, and they had people like the Flying was it not the Flying Lizards. Who well, did the that. Flying Lizards,
1: well, were, were, funny enough, I mean, Robert Cubitt, who did a lot of the music on uh, Concord, uh, went to Maidstone School of Art um, with David Cunningham. So there's quite a connection there. I'm, I'm not exactly sure if they were in the same year. I think Cunningham might have been a year ab- above or whatever, but there's definitely a connection there. Um, so it was it was weird when we'd done um, that Concord song with that strange girl singing to then find the Flying Lizards had also done totally unrelated. Yes, just the zeitgeist of 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 things at that time was obviously pushing in that direction, I guess.
0: And then we had Laurie Anderson with Oh Superman. So there was those kind yeah. of kind of weird moments that sort of just got on top of the pops and in the charts and yeah and it did seem very like it was definitely going to make your parents say what is that you know they're not even able to sing but you know it was quite oh that's not real music and and stuff like Mm. that so it did yeah so it was kind of interesting it all came out at the same time so so were you quite at that point thinking yes we're gonna because because most of the bands I've interviewed from this sort of 80s period there's a real five-year narrative you know they get together they faff about for a year mostly unemployed because there was a lot of unemployment and easy benefits yeah. to get like uh, Enterprise Alliance and Job Seekers Alliance and then that single that John Peel would play and it was like oh my god we got John Peel and then the John Peel session fantastic made a veil, probably with Del Griffith, who was the, you know, the drummer for Mott the Hooper, would do a brilliant production. Then they'd get the album. And, you know, every town and city in Britain, you know, would have an alternative indie night, wouldn't they? You know, on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday. And so you could get in your transit van, pop around, get 100, 200 you know, sort of pasty-faced kids like me going along, going, <laughs> oh, that's for £2 to see three bands. So there was definitely a good period. And then, obviously, the tricky second album came along. And then it's like, oh, dear, what should we do? And it's like everyone gets bored. So, so how did your narrative develop from, you know, because you said you were in the band. Was it the patterns before? Uh,
1: well, we, we so first of all, Robert and I did this, um, the Wildings album. Uh, then uh, we'd left college and we, Robert and I got this other chap along called um, Tom Fawcett um, and we formed the patterns and we were trying to rehearse a really tight um, show where all the songs where we collaged everything together but live but with with proper musicians because Robert and Tom could both play their instruments, I never could all I had really was my voice and um, a 12 string guitar tuned to open E (laughs) that I would bash away on. Um, But those other guys could really play. I mean Robert was like a multi-instrumentalist. Any instrument, he had marimbas, he had xylophones, he had guitars of all kinds, he had flutes, d-dars, all sorts of nonsense. And he could pick any of them up and play them and make it, well, I guess he spent a lot of time on his own practising, but it looked like he just picked stuff up and and could do it just off the top of his head. Uh, And Tom was a bit that way as well. Um, So all that Nanette and I did really was, uh, apart from telling that that was no good and that was no good and try again and... That we were doing the words and, and and the vocals and and all that sort of stuff, but anyway, so we formed the, the patterns, and um, we were working on releasing another a single. We were going to do the same thing we'd done with the Wildings. I get five hundred people to give us some money, um, release one of the, uh, a seven-inch single, and. Um, where is it? I've got it here somewhere anyway, um, and, and that. But while we were doing it, Nanette and I, I wrote the Concord song and Nanette recorded it on the, on the tape. And the other guys listened to it and went, for fuck's sake, this is really good. We'll put some music behind it and let's release that as well. Um, and so we wanted to do both. So we released, we released 500 copies of each at the same time. Um, and Tom, um, bless his heart, did that thing that all indie bands will tell you about. He he took them up to the BBC and um, he knocked on the door and said, is John Peel in? And somebody phoned through and John said, yeah, come up. And so Tom went up and said, here's a couple of our records. We've just made 500 copies of these, you know. And John went, great, I'll have them. And um, he paid Tom for them. He said, how much are they? Tom said, no, no, you, you have them and play them. He said, no, I insist. And he gave Tom the money for those two singles. Um, he never played the patterns. <laughs> 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 to be honest, again, the patterns was pretty shit. I mean, there are some good points in it, but it just didn't have the appeal Uh that the Concord album uh, track did. John played that. And of course, you know, as soon as he played it, his mailbox started getting people saying, could you play that again? And it, it's not as though, it's not, it wasn't a massive thing. Like I know some people you have, they say, well, we sold, you know, I know we got to number one or we did this or whatever. I think that single eventually we got to number five in the alternative charts. Um, partly due to the fact that um, uh, we had a supply problem because the way we made it, we printed up 500 copies of the record and then the four of us, the band members, sat around our kitchen table uh, making the covers and rubber stamping the labels. So when they came back, they were just blank labels um, and we had a rubber stamp made up. So each record had to have one side stamped Allow it to dry. Turn it over. Stamp the other side. All the covers had to be cut up. Um, I think Robert went along to some old printers and blagged a load of old posters off of him. Um, Heineken advert. Joe Jordan was around at the time doing a, a Heineken advert.
0: Oh, was that um, with his teeth missing? And then he drank. Yeah, drank. That
1: blood. one. Yeah. I remember. And it, you know, and you'd have those massive. Heineken adverts blown up to, I don't know, 20 foot long or something. But when you looked closely at them, of course, they were just dots. I don't know if you can see that one, but that, that's an original copy. Not that your listeners will be able to hear it. Imagine it, listeners. It's a <laughs> seven inch with um, some coloured dots on it. That's Joe um, J- and that's Joe J- Jordan. And, and that's just a very, very close up piece of Joe Jordan's face um, much closer than you can you know it's it's just an abstract pattern of dots Um, and from then onwards uh, all records and artwork were credited to Dan Jojo um, which was uh, Joe Jordan yes fantastic anyway so one of the reasons why we didn't sell that money copies was because we got rid of 500 copies, John Peel started playing it, people started phoning up, rough trade phoning up saying, can we have a thousand copies? And we go, yeah. <laughs> so, and then we'd be out on the kitchen, you know, rubber stamping and stuff. So it took a long time to satisfy the need. Oh, and dear. We eventually sold about 5,000, I think. I think we could have sold more, but, we just didn't, you know, we missed the boat in a lot of ways because it was too late. It was too
0: late. And was that yeah. the label, Heater Volume Records, was that one that you started yourselves?
1: Yes, yeah. Um, Heater Volume, I think... Um, I think Nanette had a nickname for Robert Cubit, which was Heater. Um, so that's the reason for Heater. And um, I just chose volume as my half of it. So it was heat to volume. Yes. It
0: oh, yeah. makes absolute sense. So then It makes absolute sense. It does make sense. So then you, <laughs> you have that tricky kind of like, now we've got to sort of release the next single, or do the next album or the first album. So how did that then sort of develop? Well, did of course, you...
1: then we did what all bands do. We um, imploded. Partly it was Tony Visconsi's fault. Um, because um, Tony Visconti, um, Visconti sorry, yeah. um, um, phoned up Robert out of the blue and said, I'd like to remix Concord and make it, uh, make it more of a pop song. Because Concord was like six and a half minutes long and it was the same verse repeated three times. Um, you know, it was an art school type approach um it didn't have drums on it you know all sorts of things it had brilliant guitar playing but but anyway tony wanted to do something and make it um more accessible i suppose and um i said no um robert said yes i said no um and we had a bit of a bust up over it um <laughs> <laughs> And um, we did also did that thing which all uh, young people tend to do. We got, we all thought it was us, us individually that made it successful. And the truth is, nobody individually makes anything successful. There's always a team behind. Everything you do, whether it's a band or or whatever it is, even if it's the people that are just painting the backdrop for your spectacular show, everyone's combining to make whatever it is you do good and and for people to like it. And so I was thinking that it was my words that were so brilliant. Um, I don't think the net was quite so much to blame. Um, (laughs) Uh, but um, Robert and Tom, both Tom thought it was his WASP, wasp synthesizer going, <laughs> <laughs> that was the real thing that made it. Get, uh, Robert was thinking that it was his crazy little guitar licks and bits that he put, put in. We all thought we were responsible and um, we fell out over it. It was terrible that that, that, that happened. And I bitterly regret it, but uh, it's too late to do anything about it now. Yes, (laughs) but anyway, um, Nanette and I split off, and Cherry Red, who we'd sort of signed to at that time, um, so gave us some money, and we went off and we did uh, another album called Tenderly Hurt Me. Well, it was a it's a um, a twelve inch single, got four tracks on it, um, recorded in a proper um recording studio. Um and this is it, with and this is with glass records, was it? Illuminated glass, yeah. They Cherry Red sort of got organized it, but they got illuminated in glass to uh, share putting the money up. A very clever Ian McNay at Cherry Red. Because I've done an interview
0: with David, who's part who's Glass Records in Northumber. Right. Is that the same guy? Is this the same label? Well, I, I don't know. It
1: might be. I've I've forgotten who we talked to at Glass, but but Cherry Red basically got glass and illuminated to do to 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 promote it and put it out and, and pay for the recording. And <laughs> um you know i i i do like some of this album i think i i think it it is you know a good album by the way listeners we do have a website it's nativehipsters.co.uk and if you go there you can you can see you know you can hear all this sort of stuff you yes. don't have to uh, the stuff on bandcamp you can just listen to to it free but um so those uh tracks on there four tracks on there some of the, well, I think they're all good, but they 're all very collagey. they they didn't because we didn't have any musicians as such um they t- They ended up being all sorts of collaged music um you know, at the time, whenever I heard anything a bit crazy, i'd put a microphone under it and record it so if um Wandsworth Council came along and dug up the road outside our flat there'd be microphones dangling out of the windows. And um, on one occasion, I went down and interrupted the guys digging up the road and said, could you try and do your drilling sort of in rhythm with each other so I can record it? Which they did. Um, (laughs) And then, you know, one day for instance, we found somebody had left an old piano in the street. We'd come back from the pub and there was a piano in the street. So we pushed it up the road into our hallway uh, and sort of dismantled it and recorded ourselves dismantling it and then dumped it back to the street.
0: <laughs> Excellent. So look. Not proud. proud. So, so yeah, not very wombly. But look, so you did three singles. There, she, there goes Concord again. Yeah. Tenderly
1: Hurt Me. And then Tenderly Hurt Me. Then Going Steady then with Larry and Emma. Gary, going Steady with Larry and Emma, yeah. And with that one, Cherry Red had said, well, who can we get in to help? Um, with the music, and I already knew um, Tom at Leicester Square from the Monochrome set. Um, he and I had actually met, um, I think, in the summer of 77. When did Elvis die? Not that well, we killed him. No, that was about, yeah, 77.
0: I think it was 77, part of the year. Of yeah,
1: well, Tom and I worked, we had a summer job where we met. We were both doing the same summer job. Um, in 1977 Um, I know that's the case because we 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 happened to be in Blackpool doing doing this gig in Blackpool and we walked into a into a newsagent's and the woman was standing behind the counter absolutely really flooded with tears she was trying to sell newspapers but she was just absolutely beside herself with grief and it was about half an hour after she'd heard Elvis had died so I know it was that that day and that summer. Oh dear. So um they said uh, Leicester Squares would be interested in doing something. So we got Leicester Square in um um Annie Whitehead of course brilliant trombonist um and a couple of other people Chris Cornetto I'm, I'm not sure if you'd know of him but anyway we got all those people together and again went into a studio and again on I don't think that's a spectacular record but it was an unusual record one of the problems with it was that when we did live gigs Nanette and I we didn't have a band so we just had tape backings and um one of the backings was um do you know Kingston town lord creator no song well it's a it's a fantastic scar track uh, by lord creator kingston town and um as they did in those days, they'd have one side with him singing and then the other side was just a, a the track so that MCs could toast over the top of it or whatever. So we used that track for Nanette to sing um, Larry's Coming Back Over live and it was spectacularly good. Mm. And Chad said, we love that track. We want you to record that track. But we can't use the Lord Creator track because um, it wouldn't be allowed. And um, I just wish now that we'd said, fuck you, we're going to use it and, you know, <laughs> play them whatever they want because it would have been spectacular. But instead, we went into a studio in Brixton with all these people and tried to recreate our own Scar version. And, um, it's, it's, uh, it didn't work. It didn't, yes, that's the polite I way. I threw too much at it, you know. Again, I, I was still under the impression that it was me that was doing everything. I should have, you know, we should have had a, a producer and somebody in there to give us some bloody advice as to what we should do, rather rely on uh, me and my inflamed ego at the time. Yes, absolutely. So what was the single that came out of that, did you say? Uh,
0: Larry's Coming Back. Larry's Coming Back. So then, I mean, so obviously you're a singles band. You also support Bauhaus as well at times.
1: That's right. Uh, At one stage, uh, when we were the full band with the patterns, um, we sent Bauhaus a tape. Uh, Tom did this again. He he just made up a tape of the various bits we'd been uh, working on, sent it off to Bauhaus, presumably because he thought they were good, well, we all liked them, and um, they immediately got back to us and said, "Would you support us at um, Northampton race Course? and um, so yeah, we got in the back of a hired a van and we we went over there and did it um, and it's notable because um, obviously the Bauhaus supporters and they're a Northampton band, so they were, you know everyone was there to see filling this pavilion sort of place on the on the race course were there to see Bauer House. They weren't here, they weren't there to see this bunch of um, thumb uh, banana fingered <laughs> non- uh, with this girl who couldn't sing in tune. Uh, they weren't there to see us. So they wanted to see we Pete Murphy's
0: chiseled jawline, didn't they really?
1: No, they wanted to see that and they wanted to, They well, they all they could see really was black, <laughs> black mist um and while we were on the black mist descended and um half the audience just left and when we finished they found they'd gone into the toilets and destroyed the toilets at Northampton racecourse they'd ripped all the all the cubicles all the cubicles had been ripped down and all the toilets had been ripped out um, in, in protest at our playing presumably <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes god that must have gone very well yes we
1: didn't mind no it was it was all part of the show but yeah bauer didn't mind Bauerhouse thought it was great and we all went back uh, to to um oh, what's his name the bass players david name. ash uh, daniel d- uh, it's daniel david and um david it's david um, he's now in New York, isn't he? Doing being a DJ himself or something. Um, but um, yeah, we all went back to his house and had cups of tea and stuff before we drove home. And you know, they were very happy with what we did. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me actually of a gig I did as Woody. Uh, I played a heavy metal gig at the Astoria, Tottenham Court Road, and um, the bloke said, um, rather than do your normal records, just select loads of heavy metal tracks so i went on and the first record i brought out was twisted sister which i threw up in the air and hit with a hammer and i'd only been on stage what 15 seconds and the place went fucking mental (laughs) and the crowd all just sort of dragged all my equipment and the microphone stands and everything off the stage and just stomped it on the ground and there were pints of beer glass Pints at the time flying back all over the place so I was on stage for about 30 seconds there was an absolute fucking riot the security had to come on and drag me off and the bloke that organised the gig stood backstage counted 200 notes into my hand and said that's the best fucking thing I've ever seen (laughs) 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 not all my gigs were um, successful (laughs) anyway getting back to the native hipsters um so i did about 20 years as um woody bot muddy that was the stage name for the record graveyard show and then we got a phone call from rough trade this was like 2000 end of 2000 or start of 2001 saying we want to do this box set of rough trade stuff that has something to do with rough trade and we want Um, Concord to be on it Um, and so I thought well let's catch the wave this time so um, I got because I had a huge collection of old reel to reel tapes that I'd saved from the 70s and 80s and I went straight out and bought myself one of those um, 8 track digital 8 track digital things and I just transposed all the tapes onto that and mixed them all together and took bits of music from here and put it with vocals from there and stuff like that and created uh the the cd um called there goes concord again yes. to, to you know, catch the wave
0: and that is pretty and that obviously and then the john peel you know obsessions that start to come so you managed to get this whole album which has got 18 tracks. So this is kind of yeah. captures all your sort of early work with a with a sad yeah, of. It's,
1: it's a whole mix. I mean, for instance, the first track um is Nanette singing over an old foundations song. Um it, it's not an actual song that they released. Um we found it on a reel to reel in a junk shop in Brixton. They'd recorded it sometime in the 60s. So we wrote to Clem Curtis, who was um a singer with them at the time um and it had his um, name on it and asked him if we could use it and he said sure so we we used it and put her voice over it but then there are all sorts of other st- stuff so there's tapes there's there's bands from the past there's bands from what was then the present it's all mixed together it's a total mashup of stuff uh you know from the seventies right through to 2001.
0: Yes. And did you, I mean, was this a collaboration? you and Annette were putting this together. What about Tom and uh, Robert? Were they part of this? No, no,
1: they, they didn't really want anything to do with me after I split up the band. Robert's never spoken to me since. Uh, Tom does speak to me. Tom went off and formed his own, his own band, um, Design for Living and, um, Released a few albums, and um, um, I think he does. What's the the name of uh, Art Art Rocker? There's um, um there was a magazine called Art Rocker that he founded. I think it's it's basically a, a website now, and they still put gigs on in London, indie indie music and stuff like right. that. Right. Google Art Rocker, and your I think Art. his son runs it now, actually. Right. Um, okay. Uh, but but this album, so that Native Hipsters, There Goes Concord Again album, I basically did on my own. I had I had Nanette's blessing, um, but we didn't record anything specifically for it at the time. We just um, I just mixed everything together that I already had.
0: And was it and was it quite nice getting in touch with Annette again and uh, saying?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and we never lost. We never really lost contact. Uh, We split up as a couple, um, but we still every so often met up and uh, chatted and stuff, and spoke on the phone or whatever.
0: Yes, absolutely. But with that excitement, you then
1: sort of bring a follow up album, don't you? Well, when you say bring the follow-up album. It was five years later. Yes. Uh, because in between I was still doing Woody Gigs. So the next one was Songs to Protest about. Um, it's a tongue-in-cheek title that because obviously a lot of people are going to protest if they hear that. <laughs> just because they're being forced to hear it. Um, um and that used a mixture of both. It 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 used up some of the other stuff that I hadn't been able to cram on The first album, but uh, we also wrote quite a lot of new stuff for it, and actually got the net to actually record new vocals for stuff. Uh, So that was like a bit of both.
0: So were you were you a bit like um I don't know Peters and Lee of the of the um, sort of
1: exactly
0: we are the Peters and Lee (laughs) yes just the two of you doing your but you didn't because there was always that rumor that he wasn't blind, but I think that was just vicious rumors from the seventies, wasn't? That was just a stage act. Well, I'm the
1: reverse. There's a rumour that I'm not blind. Um, perhaps we shouldn't go down that route. No, not. <laughs> But to original copy, um, the same thing, basically, about, I don't know, what was it, eight years later, I felt the urge again. Every so often I feel the urge.
0: It's probably to be- something to do with Saturn, the sort of return of Saturn or something. So then again, was it you and Nanette coming back together and saying...
1: Yeah, that- yeah. her singing... Us recording and her singing all the vocals and then getting other people in. This is the one where we squared the circle. So um, I'd put on a website about Tony Visconti and how much I regretted not um, taking his offer up at the time. And lo and behold, we got an email from Tony Visconti saying, you know, how are you doing? It's nice to make contact. And I said to him, well, I'm working on a new album. I was sort of hoping he might say he'd produce it, but he was too busy doing U2 or the latest David Bowie album or whatever. Yeah. Um, but what he did do, he was in a hotel, he was recording in Texas somewhere. So one night in his hotel, he recorded some guitar and some um, recorder. He had a recorder with him. So he recorded some recorder and some guitar, and then he sent it over via email, et cetera. And we included that on this album. So this album has got guitar solos by Tony Visconti on it. Um, along with all sorts of other people, you know, like the bloke next door who could play um, a violin or the bloke down the road that had good, um, had a big selection of keyboards and could do orchestral arrangements and stuff like that. So, again, a huge mix of all sorts of... Of, of crazy musical influences all mashed together.
0: Yeah, so this is kind of, was running parallel to
1: Woody, Woody Bottom Muddy. Well, by the time original copy had happened, uh, which was um, 2012, I'd more or less given up Woody. Woody died a death, basically, because people stopped knowing what records were. Right. Um, Everyone had CDs, and in fact, by then, they were starting to just have downloads. Uh, So if you stood on stage and smashed a record up, uh, the audience sort of went, yeah, what's funny about that? Um, You know, destroying the records was only good because it played on that thing that people had in the 80s of thinking they were precious. Once they were no longer precious and no one gave a fuck, because they could just download something um, and listen to just the single and not even bother with an album. Um, uh, the whole sort of atmosphere of the show just dissipated. And I started thinking, well, either I can just flog a dead horse or I can just give up. Uh, so I just gave up.
0: Yes, absolutely. So so now you're creative. You said you... Was it teaching online? But, but with the music... No, well, song? now... Yes.
1: Now uh, you'll be glad to know that yesterday um, I helped um, our local uh, coalition at the council um, get rid of the bypass. Uh, We actually cancelled a bypass yesterday um, and we've put into place um, various sustainable transport measures like we're hoping to put in free hopper buses and and expand the cycling and walking network all round Hereford City Centre, um, and that's because um, two years ago, somebody from the Green Party phoned up and said to me, "You're not doing anything, you lazy bastard. How would you like to stand against the sitting Conservative mayor um, in the in the elections this year?" And I said, "Well, I will do." And they said, "Well, he won't win." I said, "Well, I'll have a go," and I beat. <laughs> 48 votes um, so I got I s- suddenly found myself sitting on the council I'm part of the planning committee and um, I did a, a group looking at looking at climate and ecological emergency we declared our council declared a climate and emergency in um, 2019 and uh, just before Christmas we expanded it to become a climate and ecological emergency and um we're pushing as hard as we can and i can tell you it's fucking difficult because all the rules have been set by government they're all policies that the government have and as a council you can't you can't actually say we don't want to do that um if the central government has said you've got to do it um so it's taken us 2 years to cancel this bypass um and save several ancient woodlands um but we just managed to do it so w- we were celebrating last night Limey, that's fantastic news that is very
0: very good you know God, that, that's kind of that's you know, that, that came right out of the blue, that bit there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So on the, on the sort of the before, you know, I mean, with lockdown, how has it sort of been creatively for you? You know, have you sort of been a little bit tempted to get in touch with, you know, Nanette again and say, look, what the hell? It's been eight years, possibly nine. Shall we just start? Well, I, the I did
1: in, in 2000 and the end of 2019, um, when I'd already been elected, but I wasn't, I still had a bit of spare time. I haven't got much time now. Um, but I started feeling the creative juices coursing through me veins. So I did plan and bring out another album. I'm just trying to try and find it for you somewhere. I'm not sure where it is now. Hmm, that's weird. Can't see it. But anyway, um, it's called Hard Noise to Scumrise. And um, it doesn't have, well, it hardly has any singing on it. Uh, it doesn't have the net on it uh, we're sort of thinking about a new album with the net but this one um basically what i did was i i used um youtube and uh, went round choosing pieces of industrial noise uh, that people geeks and people had posted so you know some redneck in somewhere in alabama or somewhere has built this fucking engine that that makes a gong, 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 gong sort of noise. Um, or somebody uh, somewhere else has recorded some factory noise or something. And I've taken all these sounds and mashed them together into basically an almost unlistenable album. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. I love it. Um, but it's fucking difficult to listen to. You have to play it loud, and it is... You know the band Girls' School? Yes. A lot of industrial noises, don't they? But they they arrange them um, as songs, with singing, with verses, with repeated choruses and stuff. This ain't like that. This is just the raw noise, absolutely thunderously whacked into the speakers so I advise you go to um you know our Bandcamp page and and listen to it David because have um, a relaxing half hour. as loud as you fucking can
0: <laughs> so have you so then once you've got that out of your system have you thought you know look Nanette
1: we need to do the next album well I, I that's exactly what I thought and I did uh, write an email to her saying that and I started trying to write some words. And I I started, I, I just read um, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Is that correct pronunciation? I can't remember. Anyway, um, and there were lots of bits in there that I liked. So I've taken all the bits of that book out that I quite like and mixed them all around, thrown them up in the air and let them fall down, sort of David Bowie style. I, I was suppose. going to say,
0: it's a bit William Burroughs, isn't it?
1: yeah um and then done a little bit of you know this line needs to just move up one to make it scan or whatever um but we've done that and um so far on the next recorded one of them and i was thinking of getting a few other people there's there's some people in hereford that uh, that do a sort of a folk band and the girl singer kate um Sings very soft and sweetly, so I was thinking I might try and have her in it as well, but it hasn 't got very far because mm. um, basically, I was going to do it this winter, but um, I got sidetracked by the fucking climate and ecological emergency committee um, suddenly decide you know we 've been meeting twice a week now for nine months hearing evidence because you know what I was saying before you can 't just say oh it 's a climate and America. Emergency, you have to show you 've done your homework and that you 've spoken to people and you, and that you 've got the evidence you can 't just say uh, we 're going to cancel the road because uh, we think uh, induced demand for traffic means that the road isn 't you know it 's just a waste of time. You have to go and read all these reports that are put out by people all around the world and ex- explain why they think it is and then you have to sort of get a critical friend in to, to say, do you really believe this? And could it be that? Or could it be this? Because you've really got to nail these arguments down. Otherwise, uh, people will say, well, it's just nonsense. You're talking nonsense. I mean, to be honest, there are, there are conservative members of um, the opposition in it, And I won't name any names. But one bloke said to me, it's all nonsense, this climate take the ozone hole, for instance, that healed itself, <laughs> right? And I had to point out to him that Margaret Thatcher actually went to the United Nations and, you know, in 19, I don't know, seventy-eight or whenever it was, went to the United Nations and actually got all the United Nations countries to bring in new laws to prevent uh the various fridge coolants and the various things cfc's in aerosols and stuff uh, and that's why um the ozone hole is no longer a problem and is healing itself because the fucking world actually did something about it um so you've got you still got people in this country in positions of power who are saying, I don't believe in it, you know, it's like the ozone hole, it, it don't exist, or it healed itself, you know, governor.
0: Yes, yes, I know, that's quite draining, you think, oh my god. I'm, I'm
1: getting a little bit carried away now, David, I wish well, I was...
0: No, saying- no, I know, easily it's it's easy to do. So, So, yes, so that's good. So um, that's great that you and Nanette are still sort of um, well talking and still making music, which is fantastic. I mean, if you could say something to a, say, you know, a 16 or 18 year old self and you could have said, you know, some like a few words of wisdom that you thought, yeah, you've learned over these decades. I mean, what would what would you want to pass on or what would you have passed on to yourself if you could have done?
1: Well, um, I was listening actually to one of your other interviews where you asked the same question. What, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> what was his name? You're just repeating yourself, David. I know. Uh, God, I've been found out. Um, I know. It was Joe Boxer, wasn't it? What's his name? Oh, G- dig. 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 Dig at Joe Boxer. And he said, save your money. Um, I would have said, um, and oh, get a mentor he said get a mentor didn't he, he he said get a mentor and I almost said that as well didn't I when I was talking about that that single one of the reasons it didn't work is because I didn't listen to any advice I would and, and, and then I'd go back to something else I said about ego You, you know no matter what you do remember it's not just you that does it it's not all down to you i know i know that uh lots of people who are famous have a great drive to do stuff but they still need other people to help them do it there's very apart from picasso maybe and a few others like that who who just create it all themselves uh, People need other people around them to create their dreams. Um, So uh, what's important is to value other people and their contributions and not think that it's all down to you to accept that other people help out and to make the most of that. uh, Because otherwise you just waste uh, a lot of resources that, that are there people i mean we are can go back to the climate emergency now because in um, herefordshire you've got thousands of people who want to help that there are green networks there's the xr network there's all sorts of other people and re up until recently the council has basically been going yeah okay but just get back in your box you know don't, we're we're sorting it all out, you just don't get in the way, and actually that's not the way forward, because you need to engage these people, and to get their energy, and they've got to help you convince everybody else, because it's all down to behaviour change, Uh, all these people, I'm getting them now, are saying, that fucking idiot has cancelled the bypass. What a complete dummy. Um, and the reason they're saying that is because they love their cars. I I love my car, um, but I can see that I need to change. But uh, the people that don't see they need to change are the problem that we have to... And we can't just bring in a law, can we? We can't say no one can go out anymore, so you can't drive. I mean, that would be ridiculous. We certainly couldn't say that. Um, so we've got to persuade those people to make that modal shift, to, um, to actually change their behaviour, uh, and not to feel like it just means they're not going to have any more fun in their yeah. life. Because you can still have fun. You can still do all sorts of things. You can still have work because there's going to be loads of green industries that need people. Um, So if you're listening at home, you're wondering what to do. Get into some green industry that creates energy or something like that, because that's going to be the jobs of the future. There's, There's going to be fucking tons of it out there. Because everything is depending on us producing clean energy. This is true. This is very true. I
0: know. Well, just on that point, it's quite interesting because I've sort of spoke to a lot of friends who work in EMV, environmental science in, at the UEA and a lot of those people. It's to do with um, behaviour change, as you just mentioned. It's, it's like you can't stop people getting in their cars, but you have to sort of give them an alternative to go... Well, you could get yeah. in your car or easily you could get on this nice environmental bus with lots of other people. Well, not at the moment, but and, yeah. and your life is not going to be you're not going to be penalised and you'll just and it will be fine. And after the first couple of days, you'll get used to it and that will be good and put your car away. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've sort of heard and been involved with lots of those conversations about how you get people to change uh, because the problem is, just on this point, the Green Party are really bad at getting their message over. So they often tell people off and say, look, it's going to be a disaster, it's a disaster, and it's your fault, and that's your problem. And, and then people feel like, well, don't tell me off. And also now you make out that it's all disaster. Well, what's the point in bothering? And it's like, yeah, stop the Green Party getting on a soapbox, because they often put everyone off try and persuade people in a nice way not to sort of tell them a it's hopeless and b somehow you're going to blame some old people that it's because of them that there's all these issues because most people go well we live a very frugal life you know we yeah the the, uh, ice cap has melted so it's kind of how you get the message over which is so important do you think i've been a bit too preachy no, no God, no, no, you <laughs> haven't been preaching. No, because you haven't blamed anybody. I think that's the problem with the Green Party.
1: No, I, I mean, you know, I'd, be, I'd blame myself. I'm as responsible as anyone else. Um, but I think we can have fun doing it. It's not like, it's not that uh, thing where um, some religious sect says you can't dance anymore and you can't listen to music and you can't do this and you can't do that. You can still do all that stuff. It just needs a, a different approach, don't you? Yes, and, and after, hopefully, after last year and hopefully this year, we will be able to go
0: out and do things. So we're learning to live without at the moment, aren't we? Festivals, music, culture, theatre. But um, hopefully one day it will all come back and we'll appreciate it even more. You're frozen. Shit, what's happened? Like some... Do, 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 Are you still there? It's not
1: recording. Fuck. Um, I'm back again.
0: Oh, my God. Don't do that. My heart couldn't cope. I thought, shit, if it crashes and it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, that's all gone. Right? It's,
1: uh, you're going to have to do a bit of a splice there, David, but no one will notice. <sighs> but my, um, we do live in the middle of the country and we haven't got, you know, our, our phone lines were installed by Oliver Cromwell. so. Yes. Well, actually, on
0: that point, I mean, because I've done a lot of interviews with people in New York, and actually, their their sort of phones and internet is terrible at, at sometimes. So, so it's it's just salt
1: law, isn't it? Really.
0: Anyway, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Look, the native hipsters. Well,
1: I'm really pleased you asked me. I I do feel like I'm a bit of a fraud. It's not like um, our stuff was as well known or as famous as a lot of the stuff you have on here so it was nice to be asked
0: well I well I don't know people people love the obscure not the obscurity they go bloody hell yes that band I remember them and then they get kind of curious because let's face it you know if you, you know if you you know if I was to interview Noel Gallagher you know it's like people go oh fuck we've had enough Noel Gallagher or you know Kylie Minogue but then it's like because it's it's been said, isn't it? They haven't got much more yeah. they're going to say that really surprises you. But then you know those bands, you know, especially the bands who've done things. I mean, obviously a lot of those bands on the '80s, without going all about it. But they did their thing, then they went, "Fuck it, we're going to have to get some work and do something else." But they've kept the creative muse going, so they're they're still creating stuff. But they realise, you know, it has to be done in a slightly different way. But the passion to create is always there so um it's a good story you know it is a good story but you know it it, it lasts that little bit of time doesn't it and the Mm. 80s as I said right at the start there was just so
1: many bands you know and I know you're a 70s band so it's good. well there's so many bands now aren't there it's it's not like they've all stopped they're all pumping away I'll tell you what I love your microphone by the way what a lovely microphone that is I bet there's a few bands would like that I don't know, oh, that, yeah. was
0: very, that was a very cheap give me, one. On. Give me a little twirl. No. I think it was £100 on Amazon, so there you go. Yeah. It got good reviews, and I thought, well, I must buy it. This
1: is my one.
0: Jesus Christ, you've got true. a gate in front of it as well. That's beautiful.
1: Yeah, I've got everything there. The microphone's on, this spongy... Yeah, anyway.
0: Yes, let's... Let's. I know, this all sounds a bit sort of... Fro- Freud would have a field day at this point, wouldn't he? <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: It is on a very long pole. Oh, my um, God. Okay. Anyway.
0: <laughs> <laughs> look, have a lovely, and, I'll, and, I'll, send, and I'll, I'll put the show out, and you'll be able to go, bloody hell, look
1: at that, and put it on your website. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely put a link to it. Thanks very much. And I'll probably listen to it and go, God, do I sound like that.
0: But anyway. Sounds good. Sounds good. Look, well, I say the same as well about myself. But, look, that's cool. Look, take care. Have yeah. a good year. Thank you, David. Bye. And that, oh, and that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Well done if you're still with it. I don't blame you if you stopped. But anyway, look, that was William Wildin talking about life in music, creativity, um, stand-up comedy circuit as well. And uh, that was him and the native hipsters anyway that's the end of the show uh, this has been david if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show all these have been archived you can find those on spotify itunes and podbean just do c86 show anyway thank you have a great week stay safe